And the more you know about the First Amendment, the more impassioned you become about defending it and understanding that this is in fact what makes America the most special nation in the world. So let me challenge your listeners. I want them tonight at the dinner table with whoever they're there with to pull out a piece of paper and a pen and write down the five freedoms of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We are Americans with strong individual rights and always have had a strong sense of purpose. Don't tell me how to vote. Don't tell me which side I'm on. I'm going to pick three from the Republican side and four from the Democratic side, and that's how I'm going to vote. And that's the most American thing you can do. Hi, I'm Russ Mason, along with Jim Duran, who earlier this year assumed responsibility for managing our archive. This News Knowledge episode features Ken Paulson, who has led or been associated with the Freedom Forum's First Amendment Center for over 20 years now and has been dean of the College of Media and Entertainment at Middle Tennessee State University since 2013. He was editor-in-chief of USA Today from 2004 to 2009 and remains on their board of contributors as a columnist writing about First Amendment issues. After leaving USA Today, he served as president of the Freedom Forums Museum in Washington for two years. Earlier in his career, he edited Gannett Company newspapers in New York, Wisconsin, New Jersey, and Florida, and is also a former president of the American Society of News Editors. From 2000 to 2005, he was the host of Speaking Freely, a national television show about free speech and the arts, and currently he can be seen on The Songwriters, which is broadcast by PBS affiliate stations across the United States, interviewing members from Nashville's Songwriters Hall of Fame. I know that's a lot of resume to absorb, but as you may have noticed, the thread that weaves all the individual pieces of his career together is the First Amendment to our Constitution, the importance of which we'll be discussing with Ken during the next half hour. First, here's just a little background about how the First Amendment Center that Ken leads came to be located here at Vanderbilt University, courtesy of Chancellor Emeritus Joe Wyatt. John Siegenthaler came over and said, you know, I think Vanderbilt needs a First Amendment Center. And he said, and the reason I'm here is that I have talked to Gannett, and I think they would... um, fund building a First Amendment Center Mm -hmm. at Vanderbilt. And I said, well, that sounds very promising because um, nothing's more important than the First Amendment uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of amendments of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vanderbilt is a place where that kind of thing, uh, I think, would, would be well received because of Vanderbilt's history. And so we began by asking Ken Paulson, as president of the First Amendment Center, to update us on its status. The First Amendment Center has been on the Vanderbilt campus since uh, the 200th birthday of, of the First Amendment, uh, which is December 3rd, uh, 1991. And that, and that has been a, a rich and rewarding run. Uh, but the funders of the First Amendment Center also fund this extraordinary museum of news in Washington called the Museum. And about three years ago, there was a decision made that they wanted to mass their resources in Washington, D.C. Having said that, the First Amendment Center is still a vibrant part of the Vanderbilt campus. We have, uh, I remain the president, although I wear a separate hat as a dean of the College of Media and Entertainment 
in Middle Tennessee. Um, but we've started recently the Siegenthaler series with the support of Vanderbilt University and a number of other uh, donors. We actually do regular programs uh, on First Amendment issues, on media issues, uh, at least once a quarter. They have been rich uh, and rewarding. And uh, we've also expanded that to include a series of Pulitzer Prize winners. And uh, the other nice thing is because John Siegenthaler, who was such a staple of life in Nashville for so long, um, he also established, well, he gave permission to establish a chair of excellence in First Amendment studies at Middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So because I wear dual hats, they both have a Siegenthaler imprint. Mm -hmm. And what, I, what I've done is actually... Um, expand the footprint, expanded the footprint of the First Amendment Center to MTSU. Okay. So in its way, it's as vibrant as ever, mm -hmm. uh, but it also is not as visible as it once was. Yeah. I imagine you must remember uh, John Siegenthaler in his role as the First Amendment Center's founder often expressed his support for our mission to preserve the news and make it available to the public. And of course, we appreciate what you've done on our behalf over the past couple of decades. Well, the mission of the First Amendment Center has always been unique among so-called think tanks because nonpartisan, um, no litigation, no lobbying. The only mission was to remind Americans of the extraordinary value of the five freedoms of the First Amendment. And so we would often look for examples in the culture of, of free speech either being honored or being violated. And so often that led us to the news coverage, and you wanted to know what, how did, how did the networks cover Kent State mm -hmm. after National Guard troops shot students exercising their right to assemble? And there was no better authority, so he steered me here very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the, the resources you have have been, have been incredibly helpful. Uh, you know, the only thing that would be on anyone's wish list is to have it all be copyright-free and and be able to use it without restrictions because it's so valuable. Mm -hmm. But I know you grapple with those issues every day. We do, and we're continuing to. <laughs> yes. Could you speak to uh, about expand on the uh, neutrality of journalists? Sure. Uh, um, it is a an extraordinary misunderstanding about media bias in America, uh, and it it makes me crazy. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of a lot of rabbit holes to go down. But, but first of all, I would just say that people who talk about the media has never been so biased. Here's the truth, and I can give you my address that people can send the hate mail because I get it every time I say this. Mm -hmm. The media overall, the news media overall, are less biased today than they have been at any time in American history. And any student of American history understands that. You go back to the birth of this nation, the reason you started a newspaper was to attack the other side. <laughs> there was no revenue from Office Depot ads. You did it to make a political point. And every newspaper had a political orientation. That's how they stayed in business. Throughout the Civil War, they had a political orientation. Throughout the Cold War, they had a political orientation. I grew up in Chicago, which at one time probably had six daily newspapers. But when I was growing up, there were three. And, and, you know, fundamentally, you knew the Chicago Tribune was a Republican newspaper. You knew that the Sun-Times was a Democratic newspaper. Well, when people stopped buying newspapers and the quantities they did, news organizations kind of wised up and said, wait a second, 
we need Republicans and Democrats and Whigs, for that matter, whoever <laughs> they are, whatever they believe, we need them to read our paper. So you saw a much more straight reporting philosophy come into play. And, and editorials that were all over the board, not necessarily in lockstep with one party. And, and what is happening today is when people say it's never more biased, is they fail to distinguish between uh, a local newspaper, a local radio station, a local television station, and, and literally three cable channels. Mm. And, and those cable channels become symbolic of media bias, but they are not representative of anything. They collectively employ less than one-tenth of one percent of all the journalists in America. And yet people are making judgments about media bias because of them. We just have to think critically as a society because we need to trust the news media. It is an idealistic profession. It is a highly ethical profession. I teach media law at Middle Tennessee. And, and one of our segments is I hand them the ethics code for the New York Times. And then I give them fact scenarios. And, and they just are blown away. You can't take free tickets. Really? You can't do this person a favor? Really? You can't use your position to get in early to a rock concert? No, you can't. And the ethical guidelines say so. Um, it is, along with law and medicine, uh, I would say uh, journalism is the most regulated, but it's self-regulated in terms of ethics and what you can do. So uh, we had as one topic to possibly delve into uh, what I was calling political tribalism. Uh, Jim, maybe you want to pick up on uh, the, the TED talk that you yes. listened to and go ahead. So there's that, there's that but then uh, in your TED talk you suggest we don't need, if we didn't pick sides there would be more political discussion about the issues. Could you right. expand that? Uh, well, one of the things I, I speak about widely is the notion that um, it's a mistake to pick a team. Uh, as you point out, it is warm and fuzzy to have a team and to wave your pennant. But what happens is politicians then absolutely take you for granted. You become a pawn. Look at the way elections are planned. They will take, they'll look at the state and they'll say, okay, I'm a Republican and I have, uh, there are already 60%, 7% Republicans in the state. I don't have to do anything for them. I will recite a few familiar talking points. I will never win over the 20% Democrats, but I'm going to focus on the independents. Mm -hmm. Now, it works better when the numbers are more like 40, 40, 20. Mm -hmm. um, but what if we all said, you know what? I'm not in lockstep with any political party. I believe in doing the right thing for my state, for my country, for my children, for my grandchildren. And I'm not going to declare political allegiance. You cannot take me for granted. If 45% of the population took that position, politicians would have to start actually detailing their plans. No more slogans. It's not enough. You can't just repeat the same lines over and over again. We want to see the plan. We will only get answers when we, when we demand that they earn our votes. And that's the key to citizenship in a democracy. You know, in the TED talk we were referring to earlier, I, I tell people that if if tomorrow 10 million more people tuned into the PBS NewsHour, and then the next night 10 million more, and then 10 million more, suddenly Fox, MSNBC, CNN would be grappling with how they can make this a slower-paced, more boring, more chart-driven, map-driven presentation. Uh, the public gets the media they deserve. 
and we deserve better. Do you think that uh, the big three, ABC, CBS, NBC, and newsprint and other uh, news uh, organizations are safe from the cable news model? No, they're not. Uh, You know, we see a lot more polarity, certainly. We see a lot more polarity on the network news than we've seen before. Um, And I I will... The other thing that's really troubling about to me about network news is the breathlessness of everything. Um, I want there to be a, a federal law that says uh, every time a news person says um, breaking news, they get hit with a hot poker. <laughs> there, there's, <laughs> there's got to be a deterrent to this. And it's misleading the public and it makes everything seem urgent and ugly and and just stop it. And we see that in local news, and we see it in national news. So I, I've seen some of that sliding. Um, newsprint less, uh, although I would say there's more pandering to uh, stories that will get clicks and less to what really needs to be reported. So imagine yourself back when you were working with USA Today. If you were there now, would you be suggesting a di- any different tact? Well, I think it's a responsibility of a newspaper editor, especially a national one, to make sure that every reader sees his or her lives reflected in the newspaper. And so to the extent that, uh, and I think, I mean, I'm biased but towards USA Today. I was actually there for its founding uh, long ago and far away. And that paper has always been dedicated to the middle of America. Uh, you just read the paper and it has more contractions. It sounds more Midwestern. There's a reason that academics in the early 80s viewed USA Today as Armageddon. Um, it was colorful. It respected sports and popular culture. The stories were shorter. In fact, USA Today invented the Internet when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened with the first web browser. Anyway, if I were there now, I would strive to maintain that philosophy, mm-hmm. make sure that the entire world is reflected in the news, the entire country is reflected in the news coverage. Um, but I'll also tell you that I did things in the aughts when I was the editor-in-chief that I think would serve them well today, and I don't believe they do a lot of it right now. Um, I would take everyday's paper, and I would send letters out to five people who had been quoted in our paper and say, how did we do? Were we accurate? Did we get it right? Did, were we biased in any way? And that would figure into the reporter's uh, evaluation at the end of the term. So if you were sending that letter to Steve Bannon or Steve you'd get, Miller, you'd get their response, and then what? Well, uh, I would look at it. Was there an, uh, was was this, they just unflattered? Was it unflattering to them, or was it actually wrong? And yeah. you sometimes come up with that. But the other is Steve Bannon then knows that we actually care what we report about. Mm-hmm. Has my phone number yeah. and call me. You can open up lines to the polarized sides mm-hmm. uh, by conveying to them that you're committed to accuracy. Um, I also as an experiment, tried to eliminate anonymous sources. Um, I developed a a new series of things you had to go through before you could use an anonymous source in in USA Today. So um, you had to meet these criteria. It had to be, before you could use an anonymous source, it had to be a, a significantly important story. You do not use an anonymous source to find out when a starlet is getting out of rehab. I don't care. I don't want it. Um, you had to go to your immediate supervisor and explain exactly who the source is, what track record of accuracy we have with them, and why there is no other way 
to get this information. No, you know, are there documents? Third, we would look for corroboration if at all possible uh, and ask whether that was using that first source, could we get a second source? And in the end, they had to make this determination. By using this anonymous source, do we benefit our readers more than we damage our credibility by using anonymous sources? And we put that in place, and year to year, we reduced our anonymous sources by 80%. Hmm. Uh, we still had to use them. You still have to use them for national security stories. You still need to use them on stories that demonstrate corruption and, and malfeasance by public officials. Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't get rid of a lot of those. So that is something I would also re-implement. Yeah. But I will give you the other thing I think the USA Today does now that addresses exactly what you're talking about. Every day from the beginning, USA Today has published an editorial and then an editorial from the other side, no matter who it is. They do it every day, and I admire that. Mm -hmm. So let me challenge your listeners. I want them tonight at the dinner table with whoever they're there with to pull out a piece of paper and a pen and write down the five freedoms of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They can do it now if they'd like to. Um, but if they, get, if they get one freedom correct, they know more than a third of all Americans. A full third of Americans cannot name a single freedom in the First Amendment. Uh, if they get freedom of speech, they will be in the upper half of Americans. Slightly more than 50% know freedom of speech is part mm -hmm. of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And then it falls off the table. Uh, now, by sharing this with you, I'm allowing them to cheat at the dinner table tonight. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's 20% know um, that there's such a thing as freedom of press in the First Amendment. Well, think about the hostility towards the media. If you're not aware it's a constitutional right, then you're going to think, well, these are just guys making a buck. Mm -hmm. uh, about 15% know about freedom of faith, freedom of religion mm -hmm. is part of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, assembly is 10%. Petition is 2%. If you can name all five freedoms, you are one of 2% of Americans can do that. And that is a tragedy. The a majority of Americans, the second, can recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we teaching the First Amendment? The five freedoms that set us apart from every other nation on the planet. It's the most patriotic lesson you can teach. And yet, we are constitutionally illiterate. And the more you know about the First Amendment, the more impassioned you become about defending it and understanding that this is, in fact, what makes America the most special nation in the world. People love to talk American exceptionalism as though we are a special people blessed by God. Uh, that's sort of an egocentric point of view, in my view. But what is exceptional is our form of government. What is exceptional is our, is our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. That has made us exceptional as a country, and we need to honor that. So if you do nothing more than teach your 10-year-old the five freedoms of the First Amendment, you will have an incredibly productive week and have done your son or daughter a great favor. Mm. Okay, everybody, we have our assignment. So before tonight's dinner, here they are one more time, our five First Amendment freedoms. Religion, speech, the press, peaceably assemble, and petition the government for a redress of grievances. I tried to summarize Ken Paulson's lengthy resume at the beginning of this episode, but in addition to all those accomplishments I listed, He's also responsible for a live musical show called Freedom Sings. And here's his explanation of this project's concept. Much of our work at the First Amendment Center, by the way, has been about taking 
constitutional theory and turning it into pop culture, making it as accessible as possible. You know, we, we so often forget that music fuels freedom in so many ways. The civil rights movement had a soundtrack of gospel songs. Anti-war movement had Blown in the Wind. The women's movement had I Am Woman. Um, and, and frankly, uh, urban rights and equal rights have been fueled further by rap and hip-hop. Uh, so, so we can get into some of those topics, and uh, I have a project I've toured with for 20 years called Freedom Sings, where I take the best, some of the best artists in Nashville, not big names, but people who were this close, I've got my fingers close together here on the audio, <laughs> uh, to being stars, uh, the keyboard player for the Steve Miller Band, the, uh, the lead guitarist for Prince and the Revolution, people who've had good careers. Anyway, they tour with me, and I tell the story of free speech and music, and they play the controversial songs. And we've done that for 20 years. So when I try to teach young people about the First Amendment, I do it with pop music. It's the best vehicle, and it gets their attention. If I put a sign out in front of a major university and say, free lecture tonight, Ken Paulson on the First Amendment, no one will enter that auditorium willingly. No one. Not even relatives. But if I say, one of the greatest bands you'll ever see tonight playing the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis and Chuck D and Public Enemy and Eminem, they come. They come in the hundreds. And that's been a great success story for us. Here's Ken at Nashville's Bluebird Cafe several years ago, introducing the show and talking about one of its songs. Now at that time, Elvis was singing songs like Good Rockin' Tonight. Now that is a song that ended up in a blacklist compiled by the Juvenile Delinquency and Crime Commission in Houston as a bad influence on young people. They asked radio stations not to play the song, they asked jukebox stockers not to carry it, they asked record stores not to sell it. Uh, we will hear Good Rockin' tonight, this evening, along with a number of other songs that either government, radio, or television tried to censor. We're going to rock away all the blues. I heard the news. And that was Bill Lloyd, who some of you may remember as half of the country duo Foster and Lloyd, or as a member of the Sky Kings. I asked Bill if he'd be willing to discuss his long relationship with Ken's musical project, and he kindly shared this reminiscence. I first met Ken Paulson in the late 90s at a short-lived music room in downtown Nashville called Cafe Milano. He came to see a songwriter's night, and we spoke after the show. One of the songs I did that night was a cover of a Kinks song that was on one of my CDs. It was a favorite of his as well, and we bonded pretty quickly talking about the Kinks and other arcane musical trivia. I feel like I was lucky he came to me first with his idea about a program that would meld music and lecture on the First Amendment. With just that description, it's a little hard to imagine, but he's a great writer and a dynamic speaker. After I understood what he was going for, I became his musical director for Freedom Sings, and that's a role I've enjoyed for 20 years now. Through the years, we've toured all over the United States with the Freedom Sings program. It's an ever-changing script, but the core is still about how popular music mirrors our society and how songs reflected and often created social change. Early performances were often just duos. It was either Don Henry and me, Greg Trooper and me, a couple of times just me, but it developed into a traveling 10-piece after just a few years. The music may be powerful on its own, but the context which Ken provides with his narrative is the heart of the program. 
Most people can't even name the five freedoms of the First Amendment, but in the course of this lecture, punctuated with musical performances, we illustrate how those freedoms come into play in everyday life and in the songs most of us know and love. One of those five freedoms that most folks can't even list includes the right to petition. In 1980, when some states refused to ratify a bill creating a national holiday for Martin Luther King, Stevie Wonder came up with a song, Happy Birthday, which was, in fact, petition set to music. That's right, and on Martin Luther King's birthday in 81, the national news covered rallies held throughout the country, urging the passage of legislation to create a holiday in King's honor. By late morning, they started down Pennsylvania Avenue. The crowd was orderly and peaceful, and as became evident when it gathered at the Washington Monument, it was large. Estimates vary. Police say 10,000 people, others estimate many more, came to listen to speeches and rallying cries, and applaud those who were working to make Martin Luther King's birthday as honored as Washington's or Lincoln's. Dr. King! He lived! He lived! He lived! When the speeches were over, one of the men most dedicated to Martin Luther King's memory did his part to promote his birthday as a national holiday. The man is Stevie Wonder, and his song speaks for itself. Steve Shepard, ABC News, Washington. There's going to be another Freedom Sings evening hosted by Ken Paulson coming up at Nashville's Bluebird Cafe on September 27th. Meanwhile, another song from that same CD, Neil Young's Ohio, will lead us into a subject very much on Ken Paulson's mind following his recent visit to Kent State University. Have you ever gone to Kent State? I have not. It's really striking. Um, I was 16 when Kent State happened, and it literally changed my life and my perspective about our relationship with our government. But I, I always had a mental picture. I've read about it, and I only, always had a mental picture of the National Guard troops, like right there in the middle, and being surrounded on all sides by students, and then perhaps the National Guard member panicking and shooting and then they're all shot no it's not it at all you go and you can see where the national guard troops stood and it's high on a hill they are at the top of an incline and and students thought they were marching back to the heart of campus and were kind of mocking them for retreating Um, and students were literally nowhere near them i mean they were a minimum of 100 feet away but the students who got shot were 300 yards away. Yards away. Yards away. Down the the hill in a parking lot. Uh, Two of the four, three of the four were shot in the back or in the side. Mm. This was murder. Um, We still don't know what caused it. There is a theory that they got fed up and they were gonna show the kids something. Mm -hmm. There's a theory that someone misunderstood an order I began shooting. In 2010, two days ahead of the 40th anniversary of the Kent State shootings, CBS News aired a report in which it interviewed both a guardsman who was there in 1970 and a student who survived having been shot. On May 4th, about 2,000 students gathered in the middle of campus near the Victory Bell. We were tear gassed. The guardsman chased us up over this hill here. About a dozen men stopped, turned raised the weapons, and they all began to shoot simultaneously. 
The shooting lasted 13 seconds. In total, 67 bullets were fired. Ronald Snyder's unit was not involved in the shooting. Where some of the students were killed and wounded was directly in front of me. I know what happened, and it was murder. Canfora has a copy of a tape recording made that day, the originals being enhanced by audio engineers in Los Angeles this week. He believes it will finally prove the guardsmen were ordered to fire. Snyder is doubtful. Uh, I know the officers involved. I can't ever believe that any one of those people would have given an order to fire. The shooting sparked nationwide protests, a movement captured by Neil Young's generational anthem, Ohio. The news coverage the next day, I've gone back and looked at it, talked about students rioting, quoted the National Guard troops as saying they had no choice, the, net, the governor said they had no choice, so they were under attack. Uh, all untrue, untrue. But the news organizations of the era tended to take the word of the people in suits and uniforms. So when you think about news coverage of the time and how closely aligned it was with the government view, throughout the early 60s, you saw newspapers and news organizations generally supportive of the war in Vietnam. You saw Southern papers generally opposed to the civil rights movement uh, taking the side of the government. But I think there's a watershed event in American history beginning in the early 70s where the press says, wait, we can't trust these people. We've read the Pentagon Papers. The investigation to Kent State showed these kids were, were murdered. Um, we cannot trust the government. And really from that moment on, there was a much more adversarial relationship between the national news media and the government. Once that happens, once the media can't be counted on to parrot the government line. If you're a member of government, what do you do? You, what do you do when those voices are critical of you? Well, you have to eliminate those voices. Enter Spiro Agnew, who became a one-man wrecking crew against the media and against professors, know-it-alls, pointed-headed intellectuals, nattering nabobs of negativism. And he was very effective and Nixon was very effective. And, and so you see that pattern beginning in the early 70s where the press is seen as either an enemy of government or watchdog of government, but not a lapdog anymore. And government's only strategy since then, politicians' only strategy since then has been, no matter what you read, it's not true. But it's been elevated to the ultimate art form today in which the President of the United States describes the press as the enemy of the people and uses the word fake news with alarming intensity. If a significant percentage of Americans say you can't trust the media, you can only trust the leaders, on the face of it, you're on your way to totalitarianism. That is not hyperbole. If you have no one serving as a check on the powerful, the powerful will grow more powerful and tyrannical. I am not saying that President Trump is going to be a tyrant. I have no idea what his political future is. But when you're now seeing people at every level of government adopt that same strategy, and you see Americans not paying for news, this is disastrous, disastrous. It's the most important issue of our time. It truly is. We are allowing the powerful to grow more powerful and, and lifting the restraints on them. This is not going to end well. We have to turn this around. This fall, the Vanderbilt University Library will be hosting another in its series of open-mind panel discussions. 
this time focusing on the importance of informed citizenship. And Ken Paulson has agreed to participate in this event. Our thanks again to Vanderbilt Chancellor Emeritus Joe Wyatt and Nashville musician Bill Lloyd for their contributions to this episode. And on behalf of Jim Duran and all of us here at the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, we thank you for listening.